Are you into camping? And by camping, I mean camping in a tent. Well, I think many of us have at least given it a try, and if you have, then you likely have a camping in a tent story or two, don't you? Now, some of those stories are good, great memories. Others are not so great and maybe turned you off to the whole camping experience. Well, in this Discover the Word podcast, you're going to discover with the group that one of the most important ideas in the Bible is communicated in a camping in a tent kind of way. Pull a chair up to the table or maybe up around the campfire with Marty Hahn, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day for some of their camping stories. And then I think you'll be surprised at how important one particular tent is in the story of the Bible. And welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. And in our next two podcasts, Mart will be leading us through a series of conversations called God With Us in the Wilderness. I think we're going to have a great time together exploring an idea related to camping and living in a tent and how that is related to something about God that we need to know. Now, I don't want to give too much of it away right now because I want you to discover it with Mart and Elisa and Bill and Daniel. And I think this first conversation will do a great job of setting you up for the series. Okay, so let's get started. And right away, we're going to learn who likes camping in a tent and who isn't all that thrilled with it. Seems like we all fit into either one category or the other, don't we? I asked you earlier whether or not you've spent time camping in a tent. <laughs> I got some interesting responses. <laughs> you said you got a story. Yeah, well. Um, <laughs> it sounds like maybe it's too much of Yeah, camping. it's too much of a story, but I was in Boy Scouts. It was in the wintertime. It was a winter campery. And one of the guys in my tent... His mom came to where the camping trip had gone to uh -uh. to check on him uh -uh. to make sure he was okay. Uh -uh. <laughs> and without telling us, she took all of our boots that were wet from being in the snow all day and put them out by the fire to dry. Oh, no. And they all froze. <laughs> so none of us had any shoes the next morning. Okay. I got frostbite. <laughs> oh, you actually got, did get frostbite. Yeah, I almost lost a couple of times. Oh, that's wow. oh, that's great. So you haven't spent a lot of time. You know, happy I've memory. Never been camping yep. since. You never did it. Okay, <laughs> Elisa. It's not my favorite. It's not your time. favorite. I'm just yeah. going to be honest. I did it like once. I think. You know what? My favorite way to do it was in the backyard in a tent with a little tiny TV and a long extension cord, and I would do it with my children. <laughs> We'd watch it like a Bambi movie or something. That was fun. And then I could go in later and go to sleep in my bed. There you go. And I love camping. You do? Um, yeah, my wife and I really enjoy camping with our kids. Oh, your wife as well. She might even like it a little more than me, honestly. But uh, something <laughs> about getting out in the woods, setting up the tent with the kids, building a little fire, just do all that fun yeah. stuff. I always like to be near a river, if possible, and yeah. sometimes to do some fishing and sometimes just to build dams with the kids. Okay, but we've got some sense of what it means to be in a tent. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> the reason I wanted to talk about it is because... Living in a tent is sort of a thread that goes, I think, from the beginning of the scriptures all the way through, when we understand how the scriptures use the idea of a tent. Okay. So uh, turn with me, if you would, to Second Samuel chapter 7, and we're just going to pull a, a moment out of the life of David. Second Samuel chapter 7 begins after David has basically subdued his enemies, whether they're members of his own house or whether they're, you know, tribal or nations. He's taken Jerusalem. Okay. He's built his palace. 
we pick up the story there, okay? So let's read chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. Elisa, why don't you begin? Sure. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Okay, now there it is, okay. The ark of God. We know that that's Mm. this, like a gold-covered chest that they put the Ten Commandments in, and then they carried it. It was this sacred object. It was a part of it. It was the most prominent spot in a tent, a sacred tent. We'll talk more about that as we go along. Bill, verse 3. Okay. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But it came about in the same night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Hmm. Wherever I have moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Okay. What's happening here? What is the king's angst? Well, he seems to be uncomfortable that he's in a, a palace of, you know, loveliness, and God himself's dwelling is in a tent. And I think it's interesting, Mark, because you're talking about this whole tent idea, that in all the years that David was being pursued by Saul and chased by Saul, he probably hadn't spent a whole lot of time living in houses. He's no. probably, he probably on the run living in tents Good or caves point. or other things. And now, almost the shock of splendor after what he's been accustomed to, it seems like it gets his attention. It says, wait a minute, there's a missing piece here. Okay. Now, do you admire David for being concerned about the fact that he's living in cedar, he's living in a palace, and the Ten Commandments, this sacred object that represents the presence of God among his people, it's in a tent? Yes and no. He built a house for himself first. (laughs) So, and then he got concerned. And then he got concerned. <laughs> okay, but, for but me, yes, it's very But admirable. from reading this passage, now Nathan the prophet, they've got this conversation yeah. here. How does God respond to this concern that David's in a palace and yeah. in a sense God's in a tent? I think if I put the best face on it, I'm like you, Daniel, I'd say yes and no. In putting the best face on it, I would say this is David whose life has been blessed by God and enriched by God and given privilege and opportunity by God, saying, I want to honor my God Mm -hmm. in a substantial way. And God's response is what? I didn't ask you to do that. I didn't ask you to do Mm -hmm. David, I never asked. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what is God thinking in this whole thing? And now we step out of this moment, we go back into the history of Israel. We know that God at Sinai instructed Moses to build a tent right? And to design a tent Mm -hmm. and gave an incredible amount of detail to how the tent was to be made. Yeah, that whole section of Exodus is tough on read through the Bible in one year, people, because (laughs) once you get to all that detail, you get bogged down. Oh, it is. Mm -hmm. Turn once to Exodus chapter 25. We're going to be at Sinai now. We're going to be many, many years before that uh, event of David. In fact, 400 or more years prior. Read verses... 8 and 9 of Exodus chapter 25. Elisa? Sure. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Okay. This was the tent of God 
in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. They were at the base of Sinai, living in the wilderness, and God is beginning to instruct Moses of what he wants this tent to be like. And tabernacle, that word, do we use it anywhere else in our world? Is this its origin? Yeah, it means a dwelling, a living place. But it's the idea of a tent, a mm-hmm. place of dwelling, and largely in the wilderness. Does this sound weird to anybody else that God would need a place to live? And I'm wondering if it's the fact that God needs a place to live as much as the fact that the people need some kind of physical representation that reminds them that God's among them, even though they can't yeah, see him. That's what it's going to be in the wilderness. Okay. God's going to be not only in the sky above in this pillar of cloud and fire, and we'll read more of the story as we get into this, but it's not only in the sky, but on the ground. Yeah. It's as people are encamped around him, there's this physical object that represents the presence of God. Now, think for a minute of how this tent moves through the whole story of Scripture. Where do we see the tent going later on? What Into does it the, become? The temple? Is it becomes right mm-hmm. later on in the time of Solomon, mm-hmm. David's son. Solomon builds a temple basically after the pattern and the design of the of the tent of the wilderness. After really God reveals that yeah. needs to happen. The temple at that point continues to represent what? Presence of God. The presence of God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. God would show up there in a dramatic way. What happened to that temple? It got destroyed and mm-hmm. rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, and destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> and as we move into the New Testament period, what's happening to that tent become temple, destroyed become temple, rebuilt become, where is it in the New Testament? Well, in Jesus' day, Jesus says, tear down this temple mm-hmm. and I'll rebuild it in three days. But So was, it is existent. Yeah, there is a physical temple, but it, then it says that he was speaking about his own body. Yeah. There's a transition in Jesus. And what is the transition? It's from a physical building. To what? To actually his presence on the planet. God's presence in Jesus. Now, where does it go from there? Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Okay. And all the people will be brought together as the temple of God where he dwells in his presence. Right. So it's it's God in Jesus, then it's God in the individual who believes in Jesus, then it's God in the people together Mm -hmm. who believe in Jesus. But it's always God in. It's God in. Yeah. So we're kind of moving from paradise to paradise, from God's presence on earth in the garden, and then in the tent. Because we didn't touch God's presence in the garden. So thank you for mentioning that, because he just walked among them. Right, and we'll talk about that more in other conversations. Now let's do one more thing. Go to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. And let's see where this story of the tent and the temple and God's presence among his people ends up. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, Elisa. Mm -hmm. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. So here we have this God with us from the garden all the way to paradise restored. And Daniel, read verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Yeah. So in our coming conversations, let's talk more about what the tent and the temple and God's presence with us and among us means, because there's really nothing more that we need than the awareness that God is with us, a God who over and over again told his people, I will never leave you or forsake you. Yeah, from the Garden of Eden all the way to the book of Revelation. The story of the Bible is about God wanting to be with us and our desire to have him with us as well. And so throughout, there's this recurring theme 
of God with us. Looking forward to gaining a much broader understanding of Emmanuel. That's not just a term for Christmas, is it? Well, that's a great start to this series of conversations on Discover the Word. Let's continue. Do you like the city or do you like the country? Mm-hmm. If you had your choice, mm-hmm. you could live anywhere you wanted. Would it be downtown or would it be way out? Mm-hmm. I want to live in the country, but to have easy access to the city. Ah, oh, you want the best of both That's worlds. That's exactly does, right. Yeah. What about you, Elisa? I'm a country liver. I'm a city girl because I grew up in a city, but I like living in the country. I don't. But I like the idea. Okay, of it. Daniel, what about yeah, you? Yeah, I love the country. Do you? Yeah, my wife and I have a couple acres, and we love animals, having animals. Yeah. So we have some chickens and stuff like that. Right. Mm-hmm. We started a series, God with us, in the wilderness, and the idea is centered around the tent in the wilderness that God instructed His people to prepare for Him to represent His presence with them as they move through the country mm-hmm. without access to food, without access to water. Mm. It was an extreme test of Israel's trust and of God's ability to provide. What was what was the test? The to test provide? was the wilderness. Okay. Being out here apart from access, there's a sense in which in Egypt it was almost as if they lived downtown, right? Yeah. Right. I mean But it wasn't exactly in the good part of town. Well no. they weren't free. <laughs> what you was know, their problem? They were slaves to the Egyptians. Yeah. But they did have access to food and housing and their basic needs right. being met. Which at the time, they probably didn't appreciate very much. Yep. But once they get out in the wilderness, mm-hmm. once they're living in tents with a God who himself, as we'll see, instructs them to build a tent for him to represent his presence, all of a sudden they're scared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They don't have the normal amenities. They don't have food. They don't have water. Yeah, we even hear that in them at one point because they're in a tough spot. And their complaint is, Moses, why did you bring us out here? At least we had food and right. we lived back in Egypt. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the city wasn't so bad after yeah. that. <laughs> no. it, you know. Look once at, uh, at what they expected as they came out of Egypt, as they were following Moses, who was being used by God to lead his people out of bondage. There's just a little part of a conversation between God and Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Elisa, do you have that there? Sure, I do. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I've watched over you and have seen what was done to you in Egypt. And I've promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Mm. It's beautiful, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. But there's also something tucked in there that I'm not sure I really understood until you brought us this emphasis on God with us. He was with them in the city, too. Mm-hmm. But did they know it? No. But that didn't stop it from being true. No. I'm indeed concerned about you. I've been paying attention. I've been watching what's been done to you in Egypt. Right. So his presence was with them even when they weren't aware of it. Right. But now as they come out of Egypt out of the Exodus, this mm-hmm. amazing rescue. Mm-hmm. How does God make his presence known to them? He parts the Red Sea and brings them safety from a pursuing Egyptian army. Right, and what else do they see? 
They see a cloud during the day. They see fire at night. And what does that represent? Pictures the presence of God. It represents mm-hmm. that God is with them in that place. In yeah. fact, isn't there a sense even that they would follow it to where when it would stop, mm-hmm. they, they knew, stop. okay, this is where yes. we're going to rest for a little bit. Right. And then when it would move on, it was, okay, God's leading us again. Let's get going. Right. So one thing they see is they see this light at night in the sky, this pillar of fire and the cloud that shades them in the desert during the daytime. And when they get farther into the wilderness, they get at the foot of Sinai, God does one more thing that we've been concentrating on to represent his presence. And that is what? He tells them to build a tabernacle, a tent. A tent. That he will dwell in. Right. Which is a kind of a funny thing to say, isn't Mm -hmm. it? That God living in a tent. (laughs) What was the idea there? God didn't need a tent to live in as much as they needed a sense physically of something they could look at to remind them that he really was present. Right. Did that reassure the people? What do we know about their experience? That was tough. Just leading up to this moment. Even though they knew and could see God with them. Yeah. I'm imagining we had that promise we read a second ago of flowing with milk and honey. Well, their experiences didn't show that very quickly because they ended up at one spot saying, hey, we don't have any food. Mm -hmm. And God started bringing bread down from heaven. And this is before the tent. And then there was a point where they didn't have any water. And so there's this miraculous scene of hitting a rock and water coming out of that rock and all of them having it. So they've already had this wake-up call of being in the city, having, in essence, their needs met, going into the wilderness and not having anything, including the very basic needs that they had. So what was happening there? What was happening in those hours Let's say before the manna. They began to complain. Yeah, they began to complain. But more than anything else, I think their expectations Mm -hmm. were in conflict with their experience. If you're told you're going to be in the land of milk and honey, instead you're in a wilderness. This isn't what we signed up for. And what's happening here, we move from the city, in a sense, into the wilderness, into the country. And we're beginning to experience... A theme that comes, I believe it starts shortly after Genesis chapter 3, moves all the way through scriptures, mm-hmm. the wilderness, mm-hmm. the country, not the nice country where you can have chickens and pigs yeah. in the backyard <laughs> if you want, mm-hmm. but the kind of country where it's, there's no evident means of providing for mm-hmm. themselves. It's one thing to be in the desert and try and find enough water for you. It's another to have a few hundred thousand people That's right. with no means. Mm-hmm. Or a mom and a dad right. who are taking their kids through and maybe they're even thinking to themselves well i don't care that i don't have any food but my kids need food and i mean you know sometimes when i read these stories and see the israelites complaining i keep thinking to myself like here they go again complaining complaining but if you really put yourself in the wilderness with them put that mindset on of a parent Mm mm-hmm put that mindset on of a leader bringing these people through, all of a sudden you start to see, well, as a parent, I would be scared to death too. We can't help but go to modern day refugees, fleeing Mm -hmm. situations. And it is dire straits Mm -hmm. and very similar. I mean, in deserts, across water, trying to get to a place of safety. So the Israelites have been told that God's leading them to a land flowing with milk and honey, but their everyday experience is not that. The wilderness is real. Oh, it is real. Let's, before we even talk more about how it's real with us, let's follow that thread a little bit through the scriptures, even beyond the wilderness of Mm -hmm. Sinai, even beyond those 40 years of living Mm -hmm. in the desert from God's hand and his provision. 
Where does that wilderness go in Scripture? Do you see it showing up any other places? You know, if you look at a very particular case, you see Elijah yeah. by the brook Kareth, and he's out in the wilderness, and the brook is drying up. God's providing him food, but what am I going to do for water? Yeah. You know, so you have another wilderness experience for him. Yeah. My mind goes straight to Jesus, mm-hmm. and after he's baptized, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And one of the temptations that Satan throws at him is... Hey, I know you're hungry. Yeah. Well, there's some rocks here, and you're God. Why don't you make some bread for yourself? Right. Yes. And Paul ends up in the wilderness himself in his own training. Wilderness seems to be a place of preparation or a place of understanding in new ways who God is. Yeah. It's really it's a place of testing. Mm. Mm-hmm. It tests our trust, and it really shows God's ability to provide when we find ourselves just beyond ourselves. Mm-hmm unable to see how we're going to make it. There's also a sense of it proving who God is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, you know, in Egypt, for 400 plus years, the people had basically forgotten all about this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The wilderness gives God a chance to reintroduce himself to these people. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. What do you say to a person who says, though, you know what, guys, you're telling a Bible story about a people who lived a long time ago. They had a pillar of fire in the sky at night, a cloud in the daytime that gave them shade. Mm -hmm. They had a tent in their presence, which God would come down and meet with Moses. At least they had the tent. What do we have today? In many ways, we have it better than they did. We have the Word of God that tells the whole story. We have the reality of Jesus' presence on this earth and then his death and resurrection. We have that revelation of who Mm -hmm. God is. Right. There's a a song, and one of the lines in that song is, I look behind and see that you are faithful. I look ahead, believing you are able. And there's this sense of we always, even us today, we can look behind. We can see where God showed up faithfully. And it's by looking behind that we can then look ahead and say, okay, God is able. Yeah. They may have had their tent and their pillar in the sky, They had their wilderness, testing their willingness and their ability to trust, showing them God's ability to provide. And we have the same thing. We've got the wilderness. Times we don't know where we're going to turn, how we're going to provide for ourselves. But that same God keeps showing up in our lives as well. Yeah, that's an important perspective our study of the tabernacle is going to provide. In times of testing, God is still present with us. He's proven himself to be faithful in the past. Looking back, uh, looking behind, we can see that. And looking ahead, we can trust that he continues to be able and will be faithful both now and going forward. Well, let's take a quick break and then let's talk about how God provided the materials needed to outfit the tabernacle in kind of a strange way. I mean, they were on the run, camping in the wilderness. And so where did all the gold and other materials come from? Another important perspective in our study called God With Us on this Discover the Word podcast in just a moment. We call this podcast Discover the Word because these conversations are built around the written Word of God, the Bible, that points us toward our need for a relationship with the living Word of God, Jesus. Whether we're working through a book of the Bible or exploring a specific topic, our mission is to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. 
And so if Discover the Word has impacted your walk with God, we would invite you to partner with us financially in reaching others. Simply follow the easy steps to give online when you go to our discovertheword.org website. Just click on that Donate tab that you'll see there. And one of the choices you'll see there is the opportunity to become one of our monthly Discover the Word partners. In this arrangement, you sign up to give an automatic donation each month in whatever amount you choose. You can sign up to become a Discover the Word partner online at discovertheword.org. How to do that and what your options are are there when you click on the Donate tab. Let's talk a little bit about the values of volunteerism. Mm -hmm. What are the values of volunteering? Well, the big value of volunteering is to sacrifice yourself for something else. I mean, I remember as a kid when President Kennedy launched the Peace Corps Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden young people were taking a chunk out of their life to go and serve someplace where there was great need. Mm -hmm. And uh, that just seemed always such a noble thing. And if you Mm -hmm. think back to moments in your life when you've learned the most, and it's been when I volunteered in a hospital or I volunteered in a public school or I volunteered through Girl Scouts even to collect canned goods, it's kind of like that kinesthetic learning where you put feet on your learning and you Mm -hmm. do it and you experience the lesson. Do you look back at those times as good times? Yeah, they shaped me and got me outside of myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a really common example of that that we see right now is in mission trips. A lot of people be quick to go on a mission trip and volunteer. Mm -hmm. I know it's harder to get people to volunteer every day or Mm -hmm. consistently, especially in churches and stuff. But there is a value to being around people that don't have the same advantages that you have had and witnessing that and realizing that your experience doesn't define everybody else's experience Mm -hmm. too. Is there a heart benefit of doing something simply because you want to do it? I think so. And I don't want to take this too far, but I was sitting next to a man on a plane not long ago, and he worked for one of the U.S. sporting associations. And I was talking to him about it, and why did he keep doing it? How much longer does he see him doing it? He's getting older, and he goes, Mm -hmm. I don't get paid very much, but I really feel like it's important. And Mm -hmm. this phrase hit me, purpose is its own paycheck. Mm -hmm. You know, when you get older, you realize after you've raised your kids Mm -hmm. or after you've had a, a career that's paid you, you still need purpose in life. And I think volunteerism is one of those places where we recognize our purpose. And some of that has to do with striving for the greater good because Mm -hmm. in golf, every weekend, the PGA Tour somewhere, and those tour events can't happen without a thousand volunteers. And if you go to those volunteers and say, why are you working here at the Phoenix Open? And say, because at the end of this weekend, $50 million is going to go to charities. Mm -hmm. That's why. Yeah. It's a different kind of contribution. Because you want to, not because you have to. I think there's an element of volunteerism, and maybe we should call it voluntarism, in our reading of the Old Testament story of the tent of the tabernacle of God's presence in the wilderness. Turn with me, would you, to uh, Exodus chapter 25. Mm -hmm. The people of God have been rescued from the slave yards of Egypt through the miraculous Red Sea escape Now they find themselves out in the wilderness. They're beginning to learn that that wilderness is a test of their ability to trust God. And it's an opportunity for God to show himself able to provide for them in ways they could never provide for themselves. God leads them then to the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain. God gives Moses the law. And part of the law has to do with a, a strange tent in the wilderness 
that, as we're going to see as we move through the story, represents God's presence with his people, showing them how much and how able he is to provide for them water, food, protection from the enemy, protection from the elements. So let's pick it up as the Lord begins to tell Moses about this tent and how he wants it to be made. Let's read verses 1 through 9 of Exodus chapter 25, and let's look for this idea of the volunteer spirit. Elisa, verse 1. Okay. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. Let's just stop there for Mm. a minute. What do you notice there? Heart prompting them to give. That's what he is using as the... Okay, the first word is tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. Offering, not a tax that you're required to pay, but an offering that you freely give. Yeah, but what if it just stopped there? Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. It's a command rather than a It's a command. We have Mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. So then the next phrase mitigates the command a little bit. Yeah. Read it again, Bill. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. Okay, now let's just run through some of the details here, which show that these voluntary gifts are to be used for this tent of God's presence. Okay, Daniel, pick it up with the next verse. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red and other type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrance. <laughs> getting this? <laughs> it's really interesting, isn't it? I'm a little confused. Where do they have all this stuff? Did they bring it with them through uh, the Red really Sea? That's really important. Let's just finish up reading then. Let's take a look at that, okay? okay? Let's pick up the reading. Daniel, I interrupted you, but where were you? I think Elisa should pick it up because I don't know how to pronounce these stones. <laughs> <laughs> we don't even have to, okay? Let's let it go there. And I'm going to jump down to verse 8 where it says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern. Here we are, God then telling Moses to make this tabernacle, in other Mm -hmm. words, for a tent that's going to represent God's presence with his people in the wilderness. Now, what I want us to look at is these materials Mm -hmm. that are going to be used for Hmm. the tent. Mm -hmm. They're to make the offerings out of what? A free, voluntary will. God says, I want you to have a heart to give it to me. Yep. Everyone whose heart prompts them. And Elisa, you say, and where do they get all this stuff? Where do they get this stuff? Right. Right. Okay. And maybe they've hidden it. Nobody even knows they have it because I don't think you would wear your silver and gold and bronze while you're running through the Red Sea. Okay. This is interesting. What we're going to find out later on is God's going to be really specific in telling them how to use these threads and these metals in the making Mm -hmm. of this symbolic house of worship. Okay. But let's go back to answer your question. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 12, verses 35 and 36. This is going to be happening in the process of Moses leading the people out of Egypt in this miraculous moment. At least you asked the question, you read it, okay? Okay, this is interesting. Verse 35? Yeah. Okay, Exodus 12, 35, the Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. Sometimes we talk about the plundering of the Mm -hmm. Egyptians, you know, the treasures that Israel carried out of Egypt. What was happening? Why were the people giving them all of this? Well, I see it as a result of all these different tribulations that had just come down, all these scary moments, Mm -hmm. including one where we had children die, the firstborn 
I think the Egyptians wanted them to get out of there as quick. In fact, in verse 33, it says the Egyptians urged the people to hasten their departure. Yeah. In other words, please get out of here because everything yeah, it's going on like right they now. They gave them all yeah. of the stuff, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. We know that God was giving them favor. We're not sure what that all means. Yeah. But they got these materials from the Egyptian people. It's almost like they've been working as slaves for 400 years and slaves don't get paid and it's finally payday. That's right. a great way to look at it. And I think what's interesting too is that, you know, it's not necessarily until God says, make a tent and bring me an offering that they may have even realized the purpose for that plunder. Mm-hmm. They didn't know there was a higher purpose right. for it. They get out into the wilderness of Sinai. God says to Moses, make me a tent. Mm -hmm. We know that that's going to represent God's presence with the people. We know that Moses is to ask the people to bring an offering for the making of this tent. But God says, I only want what they have a heart to give me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the voluntarism that you were talking about. Right. I can see why that would be a big thing. If it's true that they had been slaves and unpaid for so long, One of the responses to getting all this stuff on the way out had to have been, finally, I'm finally getting wealthy. My day has finally come. I mean, it's just like us when we're trying to find the right job or whatever, and we feel like we've been underpaid, and then all of a sudden we feel like we're getting blessed, and we internalize that really quickly as this is for me. And then you get to this moment where... I think it's so important that the heart is what prompts them to give. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. God's opening that invitation for those who remember what happened in Egypt and remember, wow, God did this work, and now I have the chance to give out of the blessing that God gave me. But would we feel like, okay, now I've got an opportunity to give it away to God? No, because you're thinking, I need this to build my spot in the promised land. I'm not there yet. But again, God's teaching, God's training his people as to where this stuff really comes from. And where does it really come from? It comes from him. Yeah. Even though it came through the hands of the Egyptian people. And what we're going to see in this story as we move forward is that this tent isn't just a tent of God's representation of his presence with the people. This tent is actually going to show what God himself is doing to continue the rescue, to continue the provision, to continue leading these people into something far beyond what they could really understand. But he's only asking them to give to him out of what he's already given to them. And isn't that what he does with us? He doesn't ask us to give him anything apart from what he has first given to us, the God who has first loved us. Are you into art? I am. Are you really? I love art. Daniel, are you? Mm -hmm. I like art. You like art, Bill? Yeah. I can go either way with yeah. it. I mean, if we're in London, I like going to the National Gallery and yeah. looking at historic you art. You would. Yeah, we would. But uh, would I make a special trip someplace just to see art? Probably not. Yeah. Alisa? I love art, and I've studied a long time. I don't, I'm not that great at it, but yeah. I love to go to museums. I have specific kinds of art I like, but I also like to paint, and that's kind of fun. What kind of painting? Acrylic, you know, just okay. paintings, you yeah. know, usually abstracts or, or other um, impression kinds of things. Okay. I do walls and ceilings. <laughs> I think you're coming to my <laughs> house because I need some help with that kind of painting. But all three of you would go to an art gallery if I you were traveling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Would you? I would. Mm-hmm. I like it. it too. I don't know much about it though. Sometimes you don't need to. Right. To enjoy it. Yeah. How would you feel, Elisa, if one of your pieces could be hanging in, say, the National Art Gallery. Yeah, okay. It'd be a real honor, wouldn't it? Yes. But I think for people living 
in Old Testament times, specifically in that generation that was going through the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land of flowing with milk and honey on the other side of the Jordan. There was something at the very center of their life, at the center of their encampment, which I think is probably even greater than our National Art Galleries. Mm -hmm. And many of the artists that were among the people traveling, along with Moses, headed Mm -hmm. for the Promised Land, ended up with their pieces being in that, really, it was in the Art Gallery of God. Wow. This story is a big one. Let's go to Exodus chapter 35. And again, we're in the middle of the wilderness, a desert land, a barren land where God had brought his people, led them by miracles out of Egypt, and then was slowly teaching them how to trust him. When they didn't have access to food stores or they didn't even have access to farmland, Mm. they couldn't plant crops, they didn't have the water to raise crops, but they had enough water, they had enough food that God was providing daily for them. In the middle of this wilderness, God had Moses tell the people and show them how to design a house of symbols, a tent. It was like a Bedouin tent. Hmm. Uh, It was portable. They'd set it up, tear it down whenever it was time to move on. In the middle of the design of this tent, there was this just inexpressible amount of detail. Mm -hmm. There was metalwork. There were fine designs in cloth. There were all kinds of different colors, layer upon layer of design and symbolism so that I tend to think of it as God's house of symbols. Mm. But to make and to design that tent, that portable tent, it required a lot of knowledge and a lot of skill. And uh, the text says, the story makes it very clear. In fact, in several different passages, it's emphasized repeatedly of where the skill came from. And I think it'd be interesting to take a look at one of those three passages And just talk about the significance of it. Why did God call attention to the artistic ability that he gave these people? Okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, Lisa, would you begin reading in verse 30 of Exodus chapter 35? Then Moses told the people of Israel, The Lord has specifically chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, grandson of Hur. Yeah, we got to get through these names. (laughs) It's part of the story, so let's have at it, okay? Okay, of the tribe of Judah. The Lord has filled Bezalel with the Spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. Okay, now stop there. And Daniel, read that same verse 31 over again, okay? All right. He, the Lord, has filled him with divine spirit, with skill, intelligence, and knowledge in every kind of craft. Okay, and it's talking about this man, Bezalel. God has given him great wisdom, great ability, and expertise. And Bill, start reading verse 32 then. He is a master craftsman, expert in working with gold, silver, and bronze. He is skilled in engraving and mounting gemstones and in carving wood. He is a master at every craft. Elisa, verse 34. And the Lord has given both him and, I always get the hard ones, (laughs) (laughs) Oholiab, son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach their skills to others. The Lord has given them special skills as engravers, designers, embroiderers in blue, purple, and scarlet thread on fine linen, cloth, and weavers. They excel as craftsmen and as designers. Okay, they excel as craftsmen and as designers. Now, I just picture this as being like God's national art gallery of the wilderness, okay? (laughs) Incredible amount of detail requiring enormous skill. 
I would think, skill not only in terms of interpreting, you know, what the project is to look like. And actually, it's interesting that the story tells us that God showed it all to Israel on the mount, on Sinai. He actually, it says, showed him what this is to look like. Mm. So it was passed along from God to Moses, to these craftsmen, and to these two individuals. What kind of abilities do you see there that God has given them? Wow. They've got wisdom and ability and expertise, but it's also hands-on, the artisans themselves. Yeah. 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 I think about uh, my dad. Now, this is a totally different universe, but my dad loved doing paint-by-number paintings. And he did about a two-foot-by-four-foot Da Vinci's The Last Supper. Mm. And some of the little tiny slivers of color required such a precise hand, even on a paint-by-number. And I could have never done that. My hands shake yeah. too much. But I would see him down there for hours just with these little tiny drops of color just so precisely done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there your dad was good, but Da Vinci. Yeah. He was the man. <laughs> That's right. Exactly yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And they were able to teach others. That's stunning, too, so they could reproduce themselves and their skill and their ability. Yeah. Now, we know that ultimately when this portrait, this tent of symbols, when it ultimately came into fullness of meaning, they were working on fine art. They were working on metalwork. They had no idea what it really meant. But they did know that God had asked for this work to be done. And when it was done, all the cloths, all the engraving, the furnishings were set up just the way God told them to do it. He would actually come down and meet with Moses in that tent, and God and Moses would communicate face to face. Now, if you knew, if you were a part of the camp, and you knew that some of your friends were involved in the artwork, what would you think about this great museum of the wilderness, this art, what would your impression be? What could you make of it? Because would you ever set foot in there yourself? You probably wouldn't see it yourself, no. What Hmm. could you make of it? No, because, again, I've said that I go to art galleries in London. I've been in Moscow several times, but I don't go to modern art galleries because I don't get it. And my sense is these people couldn't get it. They hadn't been taught to get Mm -hmm. it. All they knew is that God had given the detail. He had given the design. He had told them what to do, and he had enabled the artisans, not only to have the ability to do this and whatever their kind of skill, whether it's weaving or metalwork, he gave them that ability and he also gave the ability to teach so that it didn't all fall on just a couple of men or women. Okay? Can we bring this over into our life today? Mm. We're talking about something that God came then and filled up himself. It's still anchoring in God with us. Right. God with them in the wilderness, and this is the tangible expression of that. It's a National Museum of Art of the Wilderness that God himself would come down and fill. Yeah. What is that telling us today? Let's just guess at it. I think of Ephesians. I think that's the right verse where we are God's handiwork, created to do good works. I mean, we don't understand a clue of what it is we're doing. We just know that God has his hand on us and he indwells us and he enables us and equips us to make a contribution in our world. But most of the time we never see what that is. No, and we don't even know. We can't see visibly in the same way that the people of Israel did when God and his glory and fire came down and filled it. Yeah. But the truth comes forward though. Because even in New Testament times, the scriptures make it clear that the Spirit of God is still gifting his people. Mm -hmm. And whatever abilities that we have, whatever abilities we bring to one another and to the church, ultimately, we would say that even if we could imagine our name going in that National Museum of Art in the wilderness or in Washington, D.C. or wherever, there's a sense in which we can't just stand up and take pride. We may stand and wonder, think, oh, good night, look where my art is, look where my engravings are. 
But you know what? Mm. I got that from God. Mm-hmm. And I got it to his glory. Mm-hmm. And the scriptures make it clear now that whatever we've been given now is expressed to God's glory when we do it with a heart of love for him, gratefulness to him, and concern and care for one another. His art is to be used not just for ourselves and our own glory, but for him and for those he has entrusted to us. You may not think of yourself as an artist, but uh, actually you are. God has gifted you with something, and you can use whatever form that art takes to bring glory to God. You're listening to Discover the Word, and I'd like to ask you to think about something to get ready for our next conversation. I'd like you to think about how many times you've moved in your life, how many different houses you've lived in. You may not need to press pause at this point so you can come up with a number. It's kind of an interesting, nostalgic exercise, and so go ahead and press pause right now. Okay, you back? Did you make a count? Uh, My number was 19. And according to the U.S. Census Bureau, the average American moves 11 times in his or her lifetime. And so what was your number? Well, in this conversation, we're going to talk about a people group much larger than your family that had an even bigger number. They packed up and moved a lot. But we're also going to discover a constant for them uh, and a constant for us that with all the moving is always true. You know, one of the things I've learned about life is that I love to move. I love to relocate. I love to pack up a house and go to a new place. Don't you? (laughs) So how long have you lived in your house? I know. How often have you done that? (laughs) I think this one was 35 years. (laughs) (laughs) You love the idea of moving. I don't like the idea of moving. I'm lying. (laughs) When we moved a year and a half ago from our house to our condo, I told my wife, I said, you know, let me get some boxes and I'll take care of my library, my books and all stuff. And my wife is so sweet that she just said, you know what? You're getting ready to go on a three-week trip. I'll do all the packing while you're gone. Oh, man. And I didn't have to touch a thing. That's not normal. Moving so tough, right? Because you're packing up everything. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, you know, you realize how much extra stuff you have, I think, in those moments, right? It's humbling and a little bit embarrassing. Yeah, Yeah, you know, at my stage in life, I'm trying to streamline some Mm -hmm. things. And it is so hard. Purge is the word. Purge. And I don't know when we'll have to move, you know, but it's kind of like, oh, this is so hard. But you don't want to leave your kids with it because it's a huge task. Yeah. Yeah. We've been talking together about one really big move when uh, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people came out of Egypt with God's Mm -hmm. supernatural help. He rescued them from the slave yards of Egypt. He delivered them and put them right down in a desert, right? In the wilderness (laughs) with a promise, up to the promised land. Here we go, people, right? I mean, that was the expectation. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the people, you kind of get the sense that they had to leave Egypt quickly. It happened during this dark night and this terrible Mm -hmm. time, but you almost sense that some of them almost got out with just the clothes on their back and the kids and grabbing a few pots and pans, but probably it's a little bit more than that. I think so because they talk about the plunder that they got from the Egyptians. We talked about that Mm -hmm. in another conversation, right? right? All that the Egyptians gave them to get out of here. Well, and remember, they've been in Egypt for 400 years, so they've settled in. They're like you and your house, Mark. All that stuff accumulate around them. And the idea was that they would already be packed up Mm. before that moment was coming because they had already had this conversation. Okay, tonight's the night. I need you to put the blood on the door so that you're protected. 
we're going to cook unleavened bread, and now we're going to be moving out. So. Right. This doesn't seem like they had any clue that between leaving and arriving at the destination, there would be such a long, enduring yeah. Yeah. wait in a wilderness. So basically, they had been rescued to move again and again mm-hmm. and again, right? <laughs> That's you know right. what I'm referring yeah. to? Yeah. They set up the camp. Yeah. yeah. We picture them in tents, mm-hmm. but it's not like when we go camping and yeah. we bring just a few things. Yeah. All of their stuff, yeah. every day they unsettle. If you've ever been in an airport that has a really long line at the check-in counter, but you're going on a long trip, so you have a bunch of bags. <laughs> That's good analogy. And so every time the line moves, you have to like re-put on all your bags, yeah. and then it only moves a foot. And then you take all your bags <laughs> yeah. off and then it moves again. So you have to put all your bags back on. I mean, they were doing this yeah. day after day after day. And the people in the wilderness who thought that they had been delivered to get over to the promised land suddenly found themselves in a situation that was a little more complicated, mm-hmm. a little more demanding than they thought it would be. They got to Sinai, to Mount Sinai in the, the wilderness, the desert of Sinai. And we know what happened there. Moses repeatedly went up to the mountain to meet with God. There he received the law. And in addition to the law, the moral law, in addition to the Ten Commandments and a whole pile of case laws for applying the Ten to the situations of life, Moses was also given the details of a design for a house, a tent of worship. It must have looked from the outside like a Bedouin tent, but inside it was full of symbolism. It was full of art. It was full of symbolism that was far beyond, I'm sure, anything that even Moses understood at the time. Mm -hmm. But what was interesting is this portable house of worship was built in such a way that it was very clear from its design that it would be on the move and it was going to be broken down and set up again and again and again. Mm -hmm. But let's look at how God had the pieces and some of the furniture of this tent designed. Let's go to Numbers chapter 1, verses 50 and 51. Just read a couple of verses and see how God told Moses to make sure The designers of this tent of worship understood that this was to be portable for the move as they headed toward the promised land. Bill, would you start reading with verse 50? Sure. Put the Levites in charge of the tabernacle of the covenant along with all its furnishings and equipment. They must carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings as you travel, and they must take care of it and camp around it. Whenever it is time for the tabernacle to move, the Levites will take it down, and when it's time to stop, they will set it up again. Okay, so they're going to be on their way for a while. Yeah. It's like living out of a suitcase. Right. Notice the word equipment popped Mm. up a couple times, and I just have this picture of the amount of stuff in this tent. You know, it's probably way more than the people have in their tents. Mm -hmm. Let's look, though, one more thing. There's some other hints here about the journey. Hundreds of thousands of people moving through the wilderness with this house of worship, this tent of worship. Look once at Exodus chapter 25 and just verses 12 through 15. Elisa, can you find that? Sure. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. That sounds complicated. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see this in the design of the furniture of this tent of worship. 
like the Ark of the Covenant, where the Ten Commandments were placed in this golden chest. And well, that's a, what this goes on describes, and I think you're right on target, Mart. Read a little bit there, then. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Yes. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the Ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings for this Ark, and they're not to be removed. Then put in the Ark the tablets of the covenant. So okay. it's like designed. Yeah, and it's almost like insert tab A into slot B or yes. something like right. that, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> but the two things here are the rings and the poles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's significance to that, that they're told that this furniture is to be built with rings on each side, four rings. Poles are to be put through, and the poles are to be left in. So that they can move yeah. it whenever they need to. Yeah. Uh-huh. But here's what I want to get to. Set up and torn down again and again mm-hmm. and again. Look once at, uh, at Numbers chapter 9. This is an amazing passage. I think it's even comical. It's funny. But it makes a point, and what I want us to think about is that this journey that these people were on together in the presence of God required an unbelievable number of unexpected stops and starts, breakdowns and setups, and yet it was all part of the journey. They didn't see it coming any more than we see a lot of the stops and starts, the breakdowns and the setups of our own lives. Numbers chapter 9, verses 17 through 23. Let's remember, we're talking about a group of people traveling through the wilderness, stopping and starting again and again, and what that implied. I mean, what was involved in that? Mm -hmm. Elisa, could you start there? Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. What does that mean? Well, the cloud was a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And God said, wherever that goes, you go. Wherever it stops, you stop. Right. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at his command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. And then verse 19. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the Israelites would keep the charge of the Lord and would not set out. Sometimes the cloud would remain a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they would remain in camp. Then according to the command of the Lord, they would set out. If sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out, or if it remained in the daytime and at night, Whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the children of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted up, they set out. (laughs) What do you get out of that? Stopping and starting and stopping. But what had to happen every time they stopped? They had to unpack all of this stuff, erect the tabernacle one more time, get all the equipment out, set everything in place. Every time. Every time. Breakdown, set up, breakdown, set up, breakdown, set up. And why? I think at the very minimum, it's a reminder that the events of our life, really, God is in charge. He's the one calling us and leading us forward. And we wonder, what in the world is in all of the detail? What in the world is in all of this moving, the repetition, the changes? And I think over a period of time, we realize not only from the story of this tent in the wilderness, but from our own lives as well, that God is with us and that what's significant about this journey is not where we're stopping and where we're starting, but that there is something that doesn't change. God's with us. He's promised never to leave us, never to forsake us, and to discover with Him the joy and the assurance, the confidence that doesn't change. Yeah, what a great way to close out the first part of this study. And now I can't wait for part two. 
Hope you're finding in this study of the tabernacle a deeper understanding of this great idea that we find in the Bible, that God is with us. I think we're seeing more and more clearly that Emmanuel, God with us, isn't just a Christmas idea. He's promised never to leave us nor forsake us. God is with us. This is the Discover the Word podcast with your friends, Mark DeHaan, Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. And in part two of our study called God With Us in the Wilderness, we're going to discover some amazing ways in this tent, the tabernacle, we can see connections to Jesus and where the story of the Bible is going. Don't miss our next podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.